You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. I'm beginning this episode with a little thought about sleep. Folks, we all need sleep. It's just like drinking water. Turn off your devices an hour or two before going to bed. There are immense amount of studies of how your devices and those screens impact your sleep. Remove that television from your room. It's not doing you any good sitting in bed watching TV. Read the book, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, PhD. Welcome to episode 234. Today's guest is the youngest documented female to ski the Grand Teton, Morgan McGlashan. And before I spoke with Morgan, I had this assumption or image of who Morgan was and had done in my mind. Well, I learned we should not make assumptions. Well, I've always known that, but hey, that's where our minds go. So we always all make mistakes. And Morgan talking to her certainly changed that assumption. So don't make assumptions, folks. It's a waste of brain power and energy, and it's not right to the individual who you're making an assumption about. And it's a waste of your time. Morgan will surprise you with her story. And her bravery and willingness to seek adventure is absolutely amazing to me. As I spoke to Morgan and learned more about how she decided to go up the Grand, um, I just had to laugh. So I think you will enjoy this conversation with Morgan. Morgan, thank you for joining me at the Jackson Hole Connection. It's delightful to meet you. And thank you again for gracing me with your presence and making my day better to get to talk to you. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. You're welcome. Morgan, I read a little bit of your bio on your website. You have your own website. Cool that you do have your own website. Not everybody has their own website. Um, it's like most people do these days but <laughs> i think i know quite a few people that don't have their own website okay fair enough <laughs> i love starting off with you sharing with the guest sharing where you were raised so why don't we start off with that and how did you land here in in jackson hole great question i was not born here but i was raised here so i've been here for most of my life and here I am, still in the Tetons, still in Jackson. <laughs> where, were you, where were you born, Morgan? I was born in Colorado and lived in Telluride, Colorado for the first little bit of my life. And then I moved here when I was nine, I think fourth grade, and have been here pretty much ever since. I left and went to college for a little bit, and now I'm back. And I've been back for a while, so the majority of my life I've been here. Okay. And who'd you move here with? My mom and sister, my family. Okay. And what cool. caused the move up from Telluride up here to Jackson? My mom ran the, like, on-mountain ski photo concession. Uh -huh. um, with people who stand at the top of the chairlift and take your family portrait. That no longer really exists because outdated technology, but at the time. And she got 
a contract with Jay Jamar. And so she moved me and my sister up here to do that here. And then she continued running the business in Telluride and, and a few other series as well. But Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And so what year was it when you said you were about nine? What year was that? That would have been 2003. Okay. And growing up here in the 2003s, the 2000s, what was it like for you as as a child growing up here in Jackson? It was awesome. I mean, <laughs> I got to do a lot of skiing. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I've seen it change a lot for sure. But it's it was a good place to grow up then and probably still is. Good place to be a kid. Do you have any memories or stories that if people heard it they were like nah you didn't do that or just something that would crack somebody up about something you did as with your pals here in town oh boy i'm sure there's plenty of things that the world does not need to hear about but (laughs) (laughs) one i guess one thing that comes to mind is uh and mostly this i was thinking about this the other day because I was skiing with a bunch of kids from Coombs Outdoors at the ski area, and they skied Corbett's for the first time, and so it was a really exciting day for them, but it reminded me of the first time I skied Corbett's, which was when I was quite young, and there was a ski race at Snow King, but it was blizzarding and snowing sideways, and so for whatever reason, the race organizers decided to cancel the race, and the whole team went to Deton Village to go skiing, but still wearing a race suit. And I think I was also wearing a tutu and a bunch of other dress up clothes. I ski Corbett's for the first time. And I don't think there's any photos from that day, but it was burned into my brain. <laughs> it was a pretty great day as a kid. How old do you think you were? Oh, maybe 10, 11. Whoa. All right. You're adventurous. <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> or just part of the the culture. That's, well, for some people around the country or world, the culture here is very adventurous. Yes, it's true. Yeah. Some people would never imagine themselves doing what is almost normal everyday activity out here. <laughs> and this is true. Share with people what you do now. Uh, now I am a mountain guide, which in the winter looks like guiding backcountry skiing most of the time. Sometimes ski mountaineering or even a little ice climbing every once in a while, that sort of thing. But And then in the summer, mostly rock climbing and alpine rock climbing. So taking people into the mountains and that's mostly in the Teton. You do it elsewhere as well. What's it like being a woman in that industry? <laughs> loaded question <laughs> just, isn't it i mean sort of there's not that many of us <laughs> i mean at times it can be challenging just as with anything i think but um there's definitely an over it's like an overwhelmingly male dominated career path so there's that but there's also lots of times where it feels really awesome to be someone who maybe finds my place in more niche environments and with different people than my like male counterparts, which is really cool. And with some of your accomplishments, you can certainly hang with the best of anybody. I hope you, so. You hope so? 
I mean, I there are plenty of people that could leave me in the dust, no doubt. But well, there's a. I'm sure you've heard the saying here in Jackson. If you think you're good or great at something, just look next to you on both mm-hmm. sides, and it's probably somebody better than you anyway. Which is certainly true. Yeah. Now, with that said, you were a professional skier. Do you consider yourself? You're on a free. You're a free skier. Uh, yeah. There was a time in my life where I competed at free skiing or big mountain free skiing events mm-hmm. and i don't do that anymore but <laughs> i still work i would say like professionally in the ski industry and that's mostly as a ski guide but i yeah continue to like maintain relationships with a bunch of different brands in the industry and sometimes that means trips or photo shoots or that sort of thing but mostly now i'm a ski guide and share with people listening in what does it mean to be a free skier and to be at a professional life, professional level to be a free skier, to get paid for it? I think it can look like a lot of things, but in the way that I was doing it, it was like competing at events. And so there were different free skiing events around the world where you're given a venue and on the side of a mountain somewhere with a start and a finish. And then you ski from the start to the finish and you get judged on a whole bunch of different categories like speed and style and creativity, that sort of thing. And then based on your scores, people win or lose or however competition works. <laughs> that was a poor explanation, but. <laughs> I'm sure people have it clearly uh, visualized. <laughs> You jump off of rocks, you ski through tight spaces. <laughs> but there are events like, I think maybe the most famous one is in Verbier in Switzerland. It's a free ride world tour stop. It's a big, like rocky, sort of intense face that people compete on. And that's mm-hmm. probably like the most famous free skiing venue in the world. Are there some videos out there if people wanted to look you up on the YouTube that they could find you? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah? <laughs> How yeah. would somebody find you just in YouTube, search your name? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Is there one in particular that you recall being like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing here? And mm-hmm. then you nail it? <laughs> I think they all felt like that and some I didn't always nail it, but I think every single time I competed it was a little bit like, Oh my gosh, what am I doing here? And yeah, some venues were more intimidating than others and but I went all the way to Japan once for an event. I went to South America. I did a bunch more locally. I went to college on the East Coast, so I did a couple like in Vermont, which was entirely different than Japan or as I'm sure people can imagine, but they all were different in some way. Why is the East Coast so different? For one, the East Coast gets a lot less snow than a lot of those other places. And so the wow. conditions are often very different, like firm mm-hmm. ice is what the East Coast is known for, <laughs> um, whereas Japan is known for bottomless powder. So the snow conditions are very different in those two places, mm-hmm. but also the topography and the landscape Like the Alps are, you know, big, craggy, famous mountains and the East Coast has less craggy, less intense, smaller, more eroded mountains because they're much older. 
and gentler nowadays. And so the geology is different. When you are in a location to compete and each time you had, you were thinking about what you're about to do, which I'm, for me, it would be immensely intimidating to, to look down and think about what needed to be done. How did you overcome that feeling and saying, I'm going to do this, I'm getting it done? Oh, uh, well, that's a great question. I had a ski coach when I was younger, when I used to get really nervous about ski races, who would encourage me to like close my eyes and take deep breaths and then picture like draining all of the fear like from your head through your body and pushing it out your toes. And I'm not sure why this is what it was for me, but it was a color. It was green. And so I would like take the color green and push it all the way through my body until it was coming out of my toes. And that was like trying to a way to calm my nerves and focus on my senses. And yeah, that was like one of the tools I had for trying to mitigate the nerves. Mm -hmm. Okay. Visualization. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes. A lot of visualization, which comes from a ski racing background for me. I mean, How else did ski racing prepare you or help develop you to who you are today, do you feel? There are a lot of things that I think probably came from ski racing. One is it made me a much better skier <laughs> than I would have ever been otherwise, which is helpful for my chosen path at this point. But yeah, I think as a kid, like having something to be passionate about and something to work towards helped me develop like body awareness and nutritional awareness and just a sense of excitement for something and a work ethic. Can you talk about two of those? I'm curious to learn more about what do you mean by body awareness and then work ethic? I think for young kids and into like being a teenager and a young adult, having to be an athlete and think about how you treat your body and how you use it to perform or to feel healthy or to just take care of yourself all becomes really important when you're given like a task around athleticism that uses your body for those things. And so I think like for me, it helped me like develop good eating habits and good habits around training and taking care of myself and staying fit and also having confidence in my body and not just what it looked like, but what it could do. And I think that was really powerful as like a young female and still a big part of my life. And I think the work ethic part is just ski racing was really expensive for one. And so I often had lots of different <laughs> ways of generating money in order to help pay for it, which was everything from like babysitting to working for my mom to writing letters to family members or ski companies and just like a sense of ownership over it and trying to like make it happen I think helped me develop a strong work ethic because that's what I wanted to do and I had to figure out a way to do it. Kudos to you the commitment alone for the training of ski racing is is quite demanding and then at the same time for you to work to help pay for that I don't know if a lot of kids have that awareness or that responsibility or that requirement. I think that might be more kudos to my mother who made it not optional. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but. Well, you did it. Yeah. And, and yes, sure. kudos to your mom. <laughs> my mom instilled in us kids, my brother and sister, a strong, strong work ethic for sure. And we, we have that today. And 
It's, nobody was going to take care of you but yourself once when you're in that adult world. So you had to know how to to take care of yourself and be responsible for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I'm grateful that she made me do that as a kid so that I know how to do it as an adult, better take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And you have quite a badge that you can wear around because here in, in the community, you have accomplished a first. Would you like to share with people what that first is? <laughs> I'm assuming you're talking about the Grand Teton because that's often. No, I thought you were the first to eat 100 hot dogs in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, little did you know, that's all. Just kidding. <laughs> you yeah, were I... the first to cow tip 12 cows <laughs> in one night on the Lockhart Ranch and get away with it. Oops, <laughs> I hope you're not listening. <laughs> But I'm not yeah. here to talk about you being the first woman to, the youngest woman to ever ski the Grand. We're not here to talk about yeah. that. No, people don't care about that. Not at all. <laughs> How old uh, were you when you did it? I was 19. And so, truthfully, I'm sure there's been someone else since then who was younger. Or a younger woman. There was definitely, mm -hmm. have been younger people, for sure. But... They just um, need to come forward and say it. You were the first <laughs> youngest person to do it. Well, I was with a friend who was younger than me at the time, so he was definitely younger. <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> but but um, he was a he he's a he and yeah, you're a yeah. he and a her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, so you both set a record. How old was your friend when he did it? When he you? was eighteen, so Okay. All right. <laughs> I thought you were about to say eight. No, that would have been insane. But also, like my kid's age. <laughs> yeah, I somebody will do it someday. Jimmy Chin's daughter or something. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> what were you and your buddies doing that had you think I'm gonna go do this today? Because it's quite a trip up there. Yeah, I think. Well, truthfully, my friend and his dad were going to go do it, and I thought that sounded like a pretty good adventure, and so. I figured that I also could maybe, if he could do it, I could probably do it. And so I was like, I want to come. And they said, okay. And so I came. So we were with my friend's dad and his friends. So there are four of us. And, you know, the parent in the situation was substantially older than us. And at the time, did you know that you were going to be the youngest woman to ski the Grand? Uh, no, I had no idea. Which is something okay. that I actually have talked about a bit recently is just that you know that's like a tagline that gets added to my name a lot um mm -hmm. which is totally fine i'm happy about that but it's not like something i ever planned on or thought through it was just like an adventure that i wanted to go do and i didn't really realize that then that adventure would be added on to my name for so many years <laughs> uh -huh. well sh share with us how long did it take you to get to the top? What was that experience like? We did it, at least on that trip, we did it in two days. And so mm -hmm. we went up to the bottom of the TP snowfield and spent the night. And then the next morning got up super early and went up and came all the way down. So that day was probably like, I don't know, a 10 or 12 hour day. But the first day was... 
a much shorter day just walking up and setting up a camp. Mm -hmm. And when you are going up the Grand in the winter, what time of year of the winter was that? This was actually, that trip was in whenever Memorial Day is. It was over Memorial Day weekend, so end of May. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I, I mean, normal has changed a lot in the last like 10 years and now can be, you know, I have a friend who skied the Grand Teton on Halloween last year. And oh, really? Yeah. Huh. And people ski it in January and February and March and April. So, yeah. Cha- like, I would say maybe if there was going to be a normal, probably like March or April, but mm. people go up every month of the year. Seems a bit, in my opinion, a bit risky to go up there at this time of year right now. <laughs> but hey, that's people's decisions. So you guys just walked up and said, hey, hi, top of the Grand Teton, we're here. We're going to plop our skis on and, and go for it. And you just skied down. Pretty much. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of rappelling in the middle. But otherwise, that's, yeah. Rappelling, oh, yeah. rappelling down? Yeah. And there's areas where you rappelled down. How did you get up those areas? You climb up them with crampons and ice tools. Oh, okay. So this is a a full kit of gear you need to take with you. Yeah. Yep. And it varies depending on time of year and the season itself, but there's roughly a couple hundred feet of ice in the middle of the route. And that's the part that you climb up on the way down and then you repel or on the way up and repel on the way down because it's too steep and too icy and too narrow to ski for the most Mm -hmm. part. And when did you pick up some of the skills and know-how to be able to do some of those things, such as, you know, the rappelling and the climbing, and and especially on the ice? <laughs> that was actually the first time I'd ever ice climbed was okay on the Great Teton. But I'd rappelled plenty, and I started climbing when I was in middle school or early high school. So I'd been rock climbing enough at that point to know how to rappel. And I'd maybe repelled with skis before, but it's not that different than repelling without skis. So a lot of it I learned while I was there. Huh. I mean, wow, for the adults that said, yeah, you can come along and we'll teach you this as you're doing. If you were guiding, would you take somebody along and say, well, at 12,000 feet, we'll just teach you how to ice climb? Yeah, no, I've learned a lot since then. I commend the adults in the situation for sure. But I, yeah, now if I take people to ski the Grand Teton, there's a much more thorough process involved in (laughs) how you get from point A to point B. What are some things that you would discuss with your clients in advance of something like that? Um, Usually it's just a process of skiing with them and like getting to know them and see them in environments that might be similar, but not as committing. So like building up to it, like skiing a bunch of different things before you go and ski the Grand Teton that might mm-hmm. involve some of the skills that you're going to use, but in a slightly closer and less committing setting. Where would it be a less committing set committing setting? Like skiing things closer to the valley, but still in the Tetons. So like there's a bunch of other ski lines in the Tetons that you can go ski, you know, in a normal day out in the mountains that aren't quite as long as going up the Grand Teton. So it doesn't take as long and you don't have to start at midnight and you can just start at a normal time of day and go skiing. But 
Yeah. I mean, building up to it. I think you should have just ridden a snowmobile up there. It's a little steep for a snowmobile, but. And the hill climb, it's coming up soon. That's true. Yeah. Basically the hill climb. I don't know how the park would feel about it. <laughs> I do. I know how they would feel about it. How do you think they would feel about it? I might not ever be allowed back, so I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, that would that wouldn't be good. That'd that'd be bad. Hey, Morgan, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors, and then we will be back to hear more about you and your adventurous life. Sounds great. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately three thousand six hundred and sixty-two tons of food waste are disposed of in the trash in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve the county's goal to reduce, aiming for zero waste. For more information on Teton County, ISWR's residential and commercial food waste programs, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle. Change begins with each of us, one day at a time. Welcome back, Morgan. We're just talking about how you are knocking a snowmobile to the top of the Grand Teton, (laughs) so you continue throughout your life enjoying Grand Teton National Park. Yeah, it's somewhere I'd like to continue to be able to go. (laughs) Yeah, and your life now is a mountain guide. You do it in summer, you do it in the winter, for you, what is what is life like as a mountain guide? And is there any difference between summer and winter for you? Yeah, there's a pretty big difference between summer and winter. I mean, it's most basic components, just like really different activities. Climbing and skiing are pretty different. I think in the winter, like one of the biggest hazards that you have to manage is avalanches. And that's not a component at all in the summer. But you do have a lot of other risks to manage, like rockfall and lightning. And those are things that you don't worry about nearly as much in the winter. So the hazards change and the activity changes. And the, like, type of day changes a lot, too. Like, in the summer, I often have, you know, 12 or 14-hour days, which is long. And part of that is just because you have more daylight and a lot of the activities like one of the primary things I do for sure in the summer is go up and down the Grand Teton and that just takes a long time for most people. But in the winter, backcountry skiing is different. And so I go to different places and those days are often more like six to eight hours. So the length of day tends to be shorter in the winter, but we also have far less daylight. So that makes sense. And yeah, you know, I am supposed to guide people skiing on the Grand Teton next week, actually, but or in the next couple weeks. But in the summer, I'll go up the Grand Teton like once or twice a week. So I like go to the same place a lot more in the summer. Whereas in the winter, I go all over the Tetons and on Teton Pass and just more variety in terms of location. But I also in the winter work pretty much alone most of the time. Like it's rare to get to work with other guides. Um, And in the summer, There's much more co-guiding that goes on. So I get to see my peers and work together with people, which is also different. So those are, yeah, some of the major differences between summer and winter. But the variety is nice. Keeps it interesting. And between the the summer and in the winter, is there opportunity 
for you to get out and enjoy the mountains or is it just all work, 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 work? (laughs) I think uh, primarily goes in phases. And when I get into like a work, call it a work vortex, a lot of the times I just end up working a lot. But then like April and May and October, November, I tend to be a lot less busy because those are seasons where it's not as good to go climbing or skiing in the Tetons. So I spend a lot of that time going and doing those things for myself. Are you going out and experiencing the mountains around the world? Yeah, it it depends. But like this year, I'm going to Alaska in April. I'm going into the Alaska range, which I'm really excited about. And then to the Cascades in May. And in the fall, I often go to other places to go rock climbing. So yeah, definitely a lot of that time is spent traveling and going to other mountains around the world. Mm-hmm. And when you go do that, are you then a client or are you going out with other like-minded people and you guys are, you folks are planning your own trip? Definitely the latter. And sometimes I'm working, so I'm like guiding trips in other places mm. and that sort of thing. So, yeah, either going out with friends or working in other places, but it's pretty rare that I get to get guided. (laughs) I don't get to be the client very often. If you had a desire, a dream spot to go, where would it be and doing what? Oh, that is a tough question (laughs) and it changes all the time. But one thing I'm really excited about right now is to go on this ski trip to the Alaska Range um, because I've never been to the Alaska Range and I've heard a lot about it. It seems like a really magical place. So I'm excited to go see it for myself. Lots of big glaciers and out of cell service and communication. And it's fun to just tune out for a couple of weeks. And what will the conditions be in the Alaska Range when you go there? You said in April? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. I'm not totally sure. We'll find out. <laughs> just kind of take everything you might possibly need a swimsuit crampon <laughs> exactly <laughs> probably use it all. yeah i mean alaska and april can be both of those things for sure and the sun is so intense and high in the sky that time of year that you have often like 20 hours of daylight and during the hottest part of the day the ambient temperature can be really cold like you know below zero but it'll feel really hot and you can be like in a t-shirt and shorts on a glacier because it feels so warm in the sun hmm. and then as soon as the sun goes away swings completely the other direction and feels a lot more like you know negative 20 the so, temperature really is yeah exactly much more like yeah. what the temperature actually is so the sun plays mm-hmm. a big role in the environment in alaska in april is this a career that you think you you will stick with for a while at this point yes being a guide <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) I've put a lot of time and energy and effort into getting to this point. And so I think I'll stick with it for at least a while. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And how do you feel in the mornings when you wake up and say, I get to be in the Wyoming range or the Teton range or the Alaska range? People are going to pay me. People are paying you to take them around in one of probably the most remote places in the world, the Alaska range, and you get to be out there every day. I mean, it's exciting for sure. But also, you know, that comes with 
stresses and challenges too. Like being in charge of people's lives is adds up. Gets the stress builds at times for sure. When you spend, you know, twelve hours a day making sure people stay attached to the mountain. But it's also really so cool. Important, <laughs> I would say, to stay attached to a mountain. Yeah. But you know, also the views are better from the office than most. Yeah. And when you, you said when you're here guiding that you're in the winter, you're mainly by yourself. When you go to the Alaska Range, are you going to be with other people? Yes. The Alaska Range trip is actually just a personal trip. It's just for fun. So I'm not working. Oh, it is. Okay. All right. I, okay. I thought that was a, you were guiding some people. Not this, My, not on this particular uh, trip. Okay. My apologies for misunderstanding <laughs> that. Now, no, it probably was my fault for not being clear. All good. I, I totally get the part about wanting to be disconnected and feeling free from what modern life brings to us. Do you take a sat phone or like one of those Garmin outreach, inreach things? I have one of those. How do you ensure that you can communicate with somebody if needed? Uh, yep. We definitely have satellite communication. So in case of an emergency, have a way to communicate if necessary. Uh-huh. Would your mom let you go out there if you didn't have that? She probably wouldn't be as excited about it, but yeah, she generally. I quite remember my mom was always worried of whatever I was going to go do, and I mean, I was just going for a hike for the day. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, try to keep her from worrying too much. But so, Morgan, if people wanted to reach out to you and and connect and learn more and hire you out for your guide services or just want to jibber jabber with you <laughs> what what's a great way for them to connect with you uh through my website which you mentioned earlier is an easy way and that's just my name morganmcglashan.com you can reach me via email or any other normal modern communication there or you can call x mountain guides and they'll put you in touch with me too so you work with Exum? Yep. Okay. I didn't know if you had your own guide company. No. Unfortunately, that, well, it's complicated, but at least when you're working, like on public lands in North America, you have to work on a permit, and Exum Mountain Guides and Jackson Hole Mountain Guides hold the only two permits for Grand Teton National Park. Um, mm. So you have to work for one of them to work in the Tetons. Well, I so appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. You said that you are going to go coach some skiing after this? Yep, I sure am. There's a backcountry program run through the Jacksonville Ski and Snowboard Club that I uh, coach for and helped run. And I'm going to coach them because they have practice every Tuesday and Thursday at Snow King at 4.30. So that's where I'm headed next. And real quick, what's practice like for backcountry program for the ski club? Uh, most of the time we skin up snowking, but on Tuesdays we focus more on fitness. So sometimes that means we do intervals or things like that. We go inside and do core and stretching and that sort of thing. And then on Thursdays, uh, it tends to be more skill-based. So usually we skin up the king for some amount of time and then we'll do some sort of like skill building, whether that's around navigation or using a transceiver or reading the forecast for the avalanche hazard, that sort of thing. So anything to do with 
backcountry skiing skill building. That's awesome that you are helping build safe and well-informed backcountry enthusiasts at an early age. It's certainly very fun for me and hopefully for them oh, too. Cool. I'm sure it is. I'm sure they have a blast with you. For sure. <laughs> well, Morgan, thank you for your time and go have a great rest of your day. Take your dog out and throw the ball. Yes, she'll be thrilled about that for sure. Because I think your dog wants some attention. Yeah, she doesn't like when I'm on Zoom. <laughs> no, apparently not. I'm really sorry about that. It's all good. I think most people, this is a dog lover podcast. Everybody who listens loves dogs. Perfect. I'm sure they love listening to a whining dog in the background for these. Yeah. Well, enjoy your day. Good to talk to you, Morgan. Nice to meet you. To learn more about Morgan McGlashan and all of her guiding and expeditions, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com episode number 234. Thank you, Michael, for keeping this podcast going through the marketing and the editing and production. Folks, if you want to do a podcast, have your own podcast, reach out to Michael. He can help you out. And thank you to my wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William. I appreciate you all listening. All of you fans who listen, share this podcast with your friends and family or somebody that you haven't connected with in a while. I do appreciate you sharing your time with me today. And cheers till next week for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.